Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Grab your Bibles and open up to John chapter 10. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from verse 30 to 42 of John chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What riches you have given to us. This means of knowing you. This means of knowing your will. And Father, as we come to this passage, I pray that you would bless us, that you would guide us, that you would open our minds to understand what is being said here, and Father, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of it. Bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. Some sermons you get to talk about grammar. So gird up thy loins for some grammar. We'll get there. We'll get there. But these first words in this passage, I and the Father are one, we, we began to think about them last time and, and we're, we're going to spend more time on them this week, these glorious words of our Savior. Last time I connected them with th- that doctrine of perseverance that we talked about. We are triply assured that God's children cannot be abandoned by their Father, by God, because it's assured by Christ, it's assured by His Father, and it's assured by their 
the Father and the Son being one. Right? So there's like a triple lock guarantee that God's children will persevere to the end. Now, what, what offends the Jews about this statement is that Jesus is claiming to be God as has happened already, right? This is not the first time we've seen uh, this response to Jesus as we've worked through the Gospel of John. Um, Remember John 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. I mean, those are uh, deeply provocative words and echo of God's own self-revelation of his name as Yahweh, right? I am that I am. And so... Um, once again, Jesus is teaching the people who he is, and here in our passage, he does it explicitly. Now, Calvin argues that, and I don't often disagree with Calvin, but in this, this one, I guess I do. Calvin argues that this only speaks, this I and the Father are one, only speaks to the will of Christ, that they have one will. Um, But most theologians argue that this goes beyond the will of God to the very being of God, the ontology, the essence of God. Um, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one, right? Literally, the Greek here, and this is not the the grammar I was referring to earlier. We'll get to that later. Um, Just be patient. Literally, the Greek here reads like this. I and the Father are one thing. I and the Father are one thing. This does not mean that they were one person, right? If that were the case, the doctrine of the Trinity would be completely screwed up, right? Because the doctrine of the Trinity is three persons, one thing, one substance, one essence, whatever you want to say however you want to put that. And so um, it's not one person that Jesus is speaking about. They are one thing. It means they are one essence. This is what we confess in our creeds. This is the doctrine of our church. This is the boring old doctrine. I mean, by boring, I don't mean boring. I mean just like it's been there for a long time. This is nothing new, Right? The, the Nicene Creed describes the person of the Father, the Almighty, the person of the Son, begotten of the Father, and then says of Jesus, of one substance with the Father, one thing, one substance with the Father. The Athanasian Creed, which we, we, need to, we, we really need to recite the Athanasian Creed, uh, we've worked up to the Nicene Creed. We were using the Apostles. That's nice and condensed. Then the Nicene is expanded. Then the Athanasian Creed is like, wow. And it's focused completely on Trinitarian theology and very helpful. But let me, let me share a bit of that with you. And perhaps you haven't heard this or it's been a long time since you heard it. It goes like this. Now, this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons, right? It's not that there's one person who just has different personalities at times. We don't confound them. There are three persons. Nor dividing the essence. There's one thing. We don't divide the essence. 
For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another, but the divinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, there is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord. The Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as God and Lord, so Catholic religion, worldwide religion, that does not mean Roman Catholic, worldwide religion, forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. None in this trinity is before or after. None is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as we said earlier, the unity is trinity and the trinity is unity is to be worshipped. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the trinity. Okay? It's one of those age-old creeds, right? It is officially one of the constitutional creeds of, of our denomination, right? But there's so much encapsulated there, but in, in one sense, it's very simple. It's just three in one and one in three, repeated and repeated and repeated till we get that in our heads and feel the tension of it and yet resolve the tension by faith, right? Augustine taught that this one verse... I and the Father are one, John 10.30. Augustine taught that that one verse blows up two heresies during his day, and those heresies still crop up today. The one is Sabellianism. Who knows what Sabellianism is? Raise your hands. Uh, not many hands. Um, the other is the Arian heresy. Now, more people, more people could speak to the Arian heresy. Right, not German Arianism, but the arch heretic Arius of the first century. Right, the Sabellians are modalists. Right, like many Pentecostals today, God was a father, then God was the son, then God is now the Holy Spirit. Right, so one. Uh, 
one person that, that exists in these different uh, modes, right? They deny the Trinity and teach that there is only one person who manifests himself once as Father, once as Son, then as Holy Spirit. The Arians, on the other hand, teach that the Son is less than the Father. In fact, that the Son is merely a created being. There was a time when he was not, Arius said. Mormons hold to this doctrine today. Um, but this one verse, which maintains that the Son and the Father are two persons at the, and that the Son and the Father are one essence, militates against both of those views. This one verse gives us robust Trinitarian theology that we have to because it puts forward two distinct persons, father, son, and then one thing that they are, right? Now, grammar is important. Here we go. Can I get an amen? Grammar is important. That was too, that was too much vigor for that. Back in the early third century, there was a man named Tertullian. How many have heard of him? Yeah, a few people. Tertullian wrote about this very verse, and his grammatical explanation is actually kind of helpful, and so I thought I'd share it with you. He worked with a Latin translation, but it still holds true in the Greek. Um, this is from a treatise called Against Praxius. Here's what he says. Here then, they take their stand, too infatuated, nay, too blind, to see in the first place that there is in this passage an intimation of two beings, I and my Father. There are two beings. Then there is a plural predicate, R, right? Two, two beings, uh, I and my Father, R, inapplicable to one person only, right? So it applies to both. It's a plural predicate. And lastly, that the predicate terminates in an abstract, not a personal, per, personal noun. We are one thing, unum, not one person, unus. Okay? One thing, not one person. For if he had said one person, he might have rendered some assistance to their opinion. Unus, no doubt, indicates the singular number, but here we have a case where two are still the subject in the masculine gender. He accordingly says unum, which is a neuter term, right? One neuter term, which does not imply singularity of number, but of unity of essence, likeness, conjunction, affection on the, the father's part who loves the son and submission on the son's who obeys the father's will. When he says, I and my father are one, in essence... He shows that there are two whom he puts on an equal, whom he puts on an equality and unites in one. All right, so, you know, maybe you got that, maybe you didn't. It's, it's very simple. It's very simple. The, even the grammar of this one statement of Jesus shows you orthodox Trinitarian theology, Right? It has two people being mentioned, it has a plural predicate, and then it has this one, and it doesn't mean one person, which would have been a different word, it means one thing, right? So those two persons are one essence. Um, 
So do the Jews pick up on this? Do the Jews pick up on this? They seem to understand just exactly what Jesus is saying. They may not understand the intricacies of Trinitarian theology. I mean, the church isn't going to understand the intricacies of of Trinitarian theology for another four centuries. Do you understand that? But they do understand that he is saying he and the Father are one thing. They get that, right? They understand that Jesus is here calling himself one essence with God the Father. They, are, they understand that he's saying, I'm God. They get it, right? And that, uh, and that we know most obviously by what kind of action they took. They pick up stones in order to snuff out the life of what? What do they call him? What's his sin? Blasphemy. They want to snuff out his life because he's blaspheming. Now, the same thing happens at Jesus' interrogation before Caiaphas. Do you remember that? The high priest. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He just blows the doors open. Yeah, I'm God. Let me quote some Daniel to you. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And what, is the, what do they all answer? He deserves death. <coughs> they answered, he deserves death. Now, blasphemy, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is any statement that belittles God. And when a man calls himself God, he is belittling God. Unless he's God. Right? Unless he's God. These Jews will not accept that Jesus is God, even though he has performed many miracles for them to see. Right before their eyes, he's revealed his immense power to them, and they refuse to follow him. Later, Jesus himself would lament the hardness of the Jews' hearts. You remember this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Not only are they unwilling, but they gather up stones on this occasion because they want to crush his skull. They want to kill him. They want to snuff the life out of this Jesus. And Jesus responds then to their murderous action saying, 
I showed you a lot of good works. So, like, which one of them are you killing me for? I showed you many good works for the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? In other words, you know what I am saying is true, that I and the Father are one because of my miracles. Are you stoning me because I healed the man born blind? Are you stoning me because I made the water into wine? Right? Are you stoning me because I raised the widow's son from the dead? Are you stoning me because I walked on water? Are you stoning me because I, I fed the 5,000 with just a, a few loaves? Are you stoning me because you, you saw me still the raging storm? You know what I am saying is true because of the works I have done. It is not blasphemy. I am not blaspheming my father. And their response... Their response, well, for a good work, we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. See, they got it. They understood that grammar. They got what he was saying. There's their explanation. You, being a man... Make yourself out to be God. You being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. Keep in mind that Jesus was was more than a model citizen, right? He was more than a good boy. He was more than a, 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 a contributor to society, right? He had not sinned in any respect in his life. Ever, yet their judgment was that he, was, he had now committed capital offenses. He had blessed others, he had healed others, he had confronted sin, all good works, and they finally had something from his mouth that would allow them to give full vent to their rage that motivated their, their hard hearts, right? John 15, 25, they hated me without a cause. We're seeing that here. They hated him without a cause, we learn, we can learn from that, can't we? Isn't it true? If we are faithful to God, if we are obedient to Christ, if we live as if the word of God is truth, won't we find the same sort of reaction often? Jesus taught us this, right? Jesus taught us this. You, you are not promised a, a bed of roses, not in this life, You get that in the next, if you're faithful. But in this life, you're not promised a bed of roses. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So if you're in a situation where everybody is lauding you and wanting your autograph and and just thinks that you're the cat's meow and the bee's knees, yikes. Watch out. That's what Jesus said. Matthew 10, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his own household? Right? They're going to come even stronger against you. In his epistle, John writes, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. 
Just as the reward for Jesus' righteousness and good works was these charges of blasphemy and rejection, so too your righteousness is going to provoke people. Your righteousness will lead to hatred and oftentimes to rejection. Do you realize this? This is promised to you. Your sins, I mean, you'll be praised by those that hate your souls. You'll receive all kinds of praise. They'll love you if you do as they do, but your righteousness, your Christ-likeness, when you have the aroma of Christ about you, that will often lead to a strong reaction and a strong negative reaction. Right? The Apostle Peter reminds the people of those, the, those churches that he wrote to, down in the churches down through the ages. He says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. And that's strange. Arm yourselves. Right? Like your sword is going to be your suffering. Arm yourselves with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking, parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I mean, so many today don't believe this is the reality. So many in the church today, the Reformed Church, certainly the Evangelical Church, the church in America, whatever you want to think, don't believe in this reality. They think that we must be, um, they think that the goal of the Christian life is to be attractive to the world in order to win the world. And Jesus says, no, you're going to be hated and your righteousness is going to be, it's just going to provoke people and you're going to stink to them because you're going to smell of, of death. People say that we must be attractive to the world in order to win the world, but haven't I just proven to you that that is not going to be the case? The more we are like Christ, the more we will be rejected by the world. And the reason we aren't rejected by the world is because we haven't become more like Christ. Prophets and Jesus himself and the apostles wrote a lot of words to teach us that truth. There's so many other places we could go in scripture to bring out that same thing. To the apostles, Jesus said, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. The Apostle Paul to Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be comfortable in this life. We'll have big castles and Teslas. No, we'll be persecuted. Persecuted. On and on, the scriptures prepare us for this kind of reaction to our righteousness to our Christ-likeness, and yet we still want to be liked by the world. I do. Oh, man, I do. I want to be liked by the world. So 
you know, when, when that becomes the temptation, we begin considering whether we should change our views to be more enlightened, though distanced a bit from the scriptures. And we stifle our speech, right, when we know we should speak, and we pull our punches when we have an opportunity to punch, and we keep our faith, this is, this is probably the primary way we do this, we just keep our faith private, private. And we withdraw because we want to be liked by men. We even begin to wonder if God's method, this method he's laid out to us, the suffering of his people in the same way as his son suffered, we, we begin to wonder whether that's even effective. God's method. Is that even effective? I mean, we really need Tim Keller to come along and give us a different method. If we should know anything from Scripture, God is masterful at cleverly disguising victory as failure. Right? The selling of Joseph into slavery, the the death of the martyrs, the suffering of his church in this world, the very crucifixion of his son, these all look like defeats. But in the end, what are they? Glorious victory of God. God laying out exactly how to bring himself glory. But back to our passage. Jesus responds to the Jews calling him a mere man. Jesus goes to scripture. It says he goes to their own law. I'm going to go to your own law. And I'm going to, I mean the law that he wrote, right? That he inspired. I'm going to go to your law. A verse in, in Psalm Uh, what is it, 82, to confront their assertion. Here's how his argument goes, and this is a really, I find this passage pretty obscure. This is a pretty obscure argument, don't you think? Do you have your Bibles open? Are you looking at it? Here's Here's how his argument goes. We're in verse 34. Scripture Scripture cannot be broken. He says that in the middle of his response. What is written in the word of God is inspired by God and therefore infallible. Two, Scripture calls, calls mere men gods. Scripture calls, there's a, this verse he pulls out, and in that verse it's referring to mere men as gods. That's verse 6 of Psalm 82. I said, you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. In the, in the topic of the psalm, the topic of the psalm, it's speaking of the judges, the rulers of the land. Those judges are men, and their failures and injustices are, are pointed out, but those men are also called gods in that scripture. And then three, why have you not, this is what Jesus is doing, why have you not objected to men being called gods? It's in your own law. And then four, how much more then when the Son of Man, Son of God, refers to himself as God, should you not object? You haven't objected to your own law that calls a man and men gods. And then the very word of God is before you, and he refers to himself as the Son of God or the Son of Man, and you, you call it blasphemy? You guys are inconsistent. Inconsistent. 
I mean, it's an incredible argument, isn't it? We think, well, Jesus seems to be making too much out of a little thing, but stop and think, you know, stop thinking that way. That Jesus made much out of that seemingly little verse shows you just how important every jot and tittle of the Old Testament and the New Testament, just how important those things are. Jesus is showing us the importance of every jot and tittle. He's urging us to refrain from making too little of Scripture, of of lording over Scripture, of determining that Scripture is vague and unsharp. That these judges, these men, were referred to as gods is his argument. And let that teach us about the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, every word breathed out by God. Right? The Scriptures cannot be broken, Jesus then says. Therefore, we can't pass over anything that has been written. He then, Jesus, moves, moves on to make another argument, verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, this is a pretty astonishing statement, isn't it? He's essentially saying, if you can't believe what I'm saying, just believe because of the miracles I'm doing. What? The Word of God preaching the Word? He's like, well, if you can't believe on that, believe on the basis of the works. Remember when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to inquire whether Jesus was the Christ? And we're always kind of like, how in the world could John the Baptist not know that? Well, there's an explanation for that. Um, I think John the Baptist is sending his disciples there who are wavering because he wants them to have an audience with Jesus. John knows who he is, and he's sending them there. Why don't you go ask him that question? He'll completely fill you in, right? But, but John, John the Baptist sent his disciples to inquire whether Jesus was the Christ. What, what does Jesus point to there? Does he point only to the things he has said? No, he points to his works as well as his words, right? This is Matthew 11. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Right? And so what are we to make of this? In our passage, it seems to be that to these Jews, the best way of knowing he was the Christ was by looking to his works even more than his words. I would argue that it is as true today as it was then. How so? One must believe the works of Jesus or one will never believe the words of Jesus. Right? The word testifies of the works, and if, the, the, and if they, those works are dismissed, the words will also be dismissed. Do we not have a million examples of this? I mean, Thomas Jefferson, many other deists, excised the miracles from their Bibles. Right? They wanted to retain some of his words, but 
they took out all of his works. They removed his miracles. But in removing his miracles, they deny his words, particularly what he says here. Though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Deny those works, deny those miracles, and you're denying that he's in the Father. Deny the miracles of Christ and you will not understand Christ. You will conclude that Jesus is a mere man. And so the Father is not in him and he is not in the Father. Deny the miracles of Christ and you have just ungodded the Son of God. Believe in the miracles of Christ and that's faith. Faith. Faith is believing that God is at work in the world that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible, Hebrews 11. And so repent. Think, Think of the works of Christ. Repent of your naturalism. Repent of your materialism. Right, this passage of scripture we are studying militates against those views that cast God out of this world. God is there and he is at work in the world. And to truly believe in him, you have to truly believe that these works were wrought in space and time by Jesus Christ. Ryle says this, Hundred, hundreds of unbelieving man, men, no doubt in every age, have tried to pour contempt on Christ's miracles and deny, deny that they were ever worked at all. But they labor in vain. Proofs upon proofs exist that our Lord's ministry was accompanied by miracles and that this was acknowledged by those who lived in our Lord's time. Objectors of this sort would do well to take up the one single miracle of our Lord's resurrection from the dead and disprove it if they can. Go for it. Disprove it. If they cannot disprove that, they ought, as honest men, to confess that miracles are possible. And then, if their hearts are truly humble, they ought to admit that he whose mission was confirmed by such evidence must have been the Son of God. So how did the Jews respond? Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. The commentaries say this is by miraculous power. Right, they were ready to get him, and he just whoosh, got out. They will not see his miracles. They will not heed his words. From this scene, Jesus then removes himself, and look where he goes. He goes out beyond the Jordan. He gets out of Jerusalem, goes out beyond the Jordan to the place where the now deceased John the Baptist had performed his baptisms of repentance, out there in the wilderness. And Jesus stayed there for some time. And though those Jews had rejected him, there were others who then followed him out to the wilderness, right? And what did they say? Well, they began thinking about Jesus and John the Baptist, comparing their two ministries. And they're like, John performed no signs. Yet everything John said about this man was true. Everything he said about this man was true, and it's true, John did no miracles. We, have, we don't have any recorded in Scripture, right? Except maybe for his courage before Herod. You might call that a miracle. 
But John had, didn't know miracles, but John had preached. And what did, what did John say, say? What did John say? He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John preached. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the preaching of John. That was the preaching of Jesus himself who said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And all miracles Jesus performed were confirmations of the truth of all of his claims. Though many rejected everything they heard and saw, others believed in him there. Right? That's how it concludes. Many believed in him there. They looked to the signs, just as he has said in the previous section. They looked to the signs and they found Jesus Christ and they found rest for their souls. Amen.